Well, hi diddly ho, neighbors. We are in week five of our series, The Art of Neighboring, and uh, we've been talking about the second greatest commandment that talks, encourages us to love our neighbors as ourselves. and so we've been doing block maps, and we've been trying to learn our neighbors' names all in an attempt to learn to put this commandment into place and in to practice. So we've been using different neighbors each week kind of as models and there's one kind of pop culture neighbor that I don't feel like we've talked about quite yet and that is of course the ever-present Ned Flanders, right? Ned is the neighbor in the show The Simpsons and unlike other neighbors that we've looked at, uh, he's not the best example, right? Which is sad because by his own testimony, he's a Christian, and which means that every interaction that he has with his neighbor Homer Simpson seems to paint the worst possible reality of how people of faith come off to their neighbors, right? He's always got a religious answer. He's judgmental. He's sheltered. He comes off as not a nice or cool person, right? Ned Flanders is not the neighbor that you are dying to get to know better. And if we're honest, some of the reasons that we step back from our neighbors, especially around issues of faith, is because we don't want to be perceived like Ned. We don't want people to think that we're weird or churchy or out of touch. And so we, maybe I, just tend to go the opposite direction. We leave our faith out of the conversation almost completely in an attempt to stay as far away from the stereotype as possible. And this isn't just true in our neighborhoods, it's true right now in our political climate as well. Right? The term evangelical now carries political connotations and policy positions, and it makes some people angry, it makes other people feel judged, or like to be an evangelical is to be out of touch with reality. Now, I'm in no way married to the term evangelical, but it is, by definition, our history and heritage. And rather than being upset or offended at the labels that have been attached to us as Christ followers, we should probably do our homework to understand how we got to this place. After all, this term evangelical it really is just a differentiator in churches, specifically saying that a church or group of people values evangelism. Another bad church word, right? Think bullhorn guy angry on the street corner yelling about people going to hell and giving four spiritual laws pamphlets as people walk by. Right? But at its root, evangel is the root word here, which is the Greek word where we get the term gospel. It simply means good news. Extrapolated, that means it's the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that you probably believe in because, well, you're here and tuned in today, or you're at least open to believing that story. Yet somehow, somewhere along the way, this term stopped being good news to people and started being a stench. It started coming off like Ned Flanders instead of coming across like perhaps Mr. Wilson. So it's no wonder that we, me, you, everybody shies away from these conversations of faith. Because we don't want to be misunderstood or misqualified or lumped in with that group of people or certainly not these group of people. Right? I'll, I'll never forget in my first months here at the porch, we had a family who just begun showing up, and after a couple months, they asked if we were a part of a denomination, which we are. We're a part of the Wesleyan Church, which means that we're part of a larger family of believers. 
believers. It's not just me up here saying what I think the Bible says or is true. We have a history and a heritage and encouragement around each and every part of what we believe to be true about the Scripture, which I think is really important. Anyway, so this family asked if we were a part of a denomination, and I said yes, and that I'd love to talk with them about it, and they just went radio silent, right? They stopped showing up. They wouldn't respond to my emails or phone calls, but I'm persistent in case you didn't know. And so finally I did get them on the phone, and I'll never forget what they informed me of over the phone. Oh, they said, we don't want to be a part of a denominational church. We want to be a part of a Jesus church. And then they hung up the phone. And I was like, huh, I I think something's lost in translation because I don't know about you, but I think we are a Jesus church. I sure hope that we are, right? I don't think denomination means what you think it does. We have a misunderstanding of our terms. And really, we're there in our culture with this word evangelical. They talk about it on the news, and and part of me cringes. Like, I don't want necessarily to be associated with how you're associating it, but I am by definition evangelical. Because I believe that Jesus is the hope of the world. It's just also not my opening line at parties these days. The same is true of Christian, right? Of course I consider myself a Christian, a Christ follower. But when I say that, sometimes some people think that I'm saying something that I'm not trying to say. That I'm putting myself in the camp of something that I don't necessarily agree with. That I'm a bigot or a racist. That I'm anti a certain group of people. Or that perhaps I'm Ned Flanders, heaven forbid. But so much of our interpersonal relationships, especially on the surface level, revolves around this standoff of letting people get to know the real us, but not showing so much of ourselves that we feel open to their judgment or ridicule, that they don't jump to conclusions, that we have just enough of a mask to avoid showing our real selves. And so we don't talk about religion with our neighbors. Even though, just demographically, your neighbors are extremely spiritual. People are very open for conversations about spiritual things, just not Christianity. Because Ned Flanders, right? They've heard it all before. They get it. They're just not evangelical, just not politics, right? I heard that and I'm A-OK. Right, but I was on a Facebook page just the other day listening to an open conversation about people describing themselves as witches, about how witches today mean something different than it did in the Dark Ages and the Salem witch trials and how they were just all earthy and crunchy and open to some spells. They were just modern-day witches. We live in a cultural climate where witches have better PR than Christians. That's just the reality of the world that we live in. So I get it. Evangelism, sharing our faith, inviting someone to church, creating meaningful relations with our neighbors is difficult and there are a lot of barriers to overcome because people have become so inoculated and indoctrinated to the real true message that Jesus brings, that superficial level of faith, and it just turns them off. I think that we must recapture the terms of our faith. 
We want cities and officials and neighbors to be excited when they see our church sticker on our car. We want them to be encouraged by the sign of the cross displayed in our car windows, not roll their eyes. We want people to be excited when they find out where you go to church because that means that you care about people and you care about the community. We need to represent our faith in a tangible, real, practical way because people aren't listening and the loudest voices are setting terrible examples at times. We need to redefine evangelism as authentic expression again. Because the accusation that's labeled against me and against you is that we're inauthentic, right? That we aren't looking for meaningful relationships. We're just looking for converts. That we don't practice what we preach. That we say that we stand for all lives matter, but we won't show up when a certain people group is affected. They know that we're against abortion, but we're not for programs to help people break the cycles of poverty that cause those horrific acts to take place that Christians can overlook Trump's moral failures because he's on our side. Those are the accusations that are levied against us. And the result is that we have representatives of our faith who appear inauthentic, untrustworthy. So why would they listen to the good news shared from their neighbor? But, But listen, Just as it's inauthentic not to live our beliefs out in the public square, it's equally inauthentic not to talk about our significant relationships and about the reality of eternity, about a God who died and loves them to our neighbors. Unfortunately, the answer that many of us have chosen in these faith conversations, this backlash against superficial and shallow Christianity, is one of silence. Let's not get involved. Let's not bring it up because we don't want to be associated with one side or the other. We don't want people to judge that twisted view of reality or think that applies on us. So we just stay silent. We won't talk about it. We won't bring it up. This is equally inauthentic. When we don't love our neighbors enough to care for them or to have a conversation about what we believe is true, then we are equally inauthentic as they are accusing us of being. Because if your faith is an authentic belief for you, something that you actually believe is true about our life here, about the life that's to come, it is incredibly inauthentic of us not to share it, not to tell it with to people, to find some way to tell them that there is a different and even better way to live, that the path that they're on is leading them towards destruction and that we love them too much to allow them to continue on that path. We must fix our authenticity on every side of the issues today. And when it comes down to it, that's what this series has been all about. It's about authenticity, right? Are we really who we say that we are? Do we really love God the way that we say we do? Do we truly love our neighbors? If so, why don't we know them? Why haven't we found a way to get to know them? Why haven't we found a way to have the most important conversations with them about eternity to replace the narrative that they see on The Simpsons or on the news? 
Because I'm not going to lie to you. You know this has been coming all series. This is the evangelism conversation, right? Get to know your neighbors so that you can invite them to church, right? Here we go. Turn off the channel. I've heard this sermon before. I don't need the guilt trip today. Let's just stop here. But before you do that, this is, there's actually a point to all of this. The point is that that feeling that you have is exactly the point. We need to find some way to recover sharing our faith in a world that doesn't want to hear it, that doesn't make us feel icky and dirty or inauthentic, because our faith requires us to share the good news that we've received. We've been talking about the two greatest commandments, right? Loving God and loving our neighbors. They go hand in hand with the Great Commission. Is that familiar to you? After Jesus' resurrection, he's entrusting his disciples with carrying the message of the gospel forward, the good news, the evangel, literally. This is how he puts it in Matthew 28, verse 18 and 20. He said, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is our mandate. This is Jesus' instructions to all people who will follow him. And it's not just the church, capital C, it's not just our church, lowercase c, here at the porch, but it's yours and it's mine to go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them about the way of Jesus. Listen, making disciples is not optional as a Christ follower. Making disciples is not optional. It is a requirement, right? So sorry, not sorry, but yes, part of getting to know your neighbors is creating the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with them, which may seem inauthentic, and it can be, and it has been, right? Anybody had Mormons at their front door recently, right? Or we can recapture what it means to truly love our neighbor and to live out our faith authentically before our neighbors. Jesus highlights this in as much as three famous stories in Luke chapter 15. These might be familiar to you. He tells the story of a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. Do you remember these stories, right? The lost sheep, what happens? There's a shepherd, right? He's got a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off. So what's he do? He leaves the 99 in search of the one. And we're told that heaven rejoices over one lost person who repents than over 99 sheep who never needed to repent in the first place, who were never lost in the first place. What's next? He says the lost coin. What happens? There's a woman who loses a coin and she turns the house upside down looking for it and when she finds it she throws a party. How about the lost son, the prodigal son? You may know that name, right? The son tells his father, I wish you were dead so I could have my money. Dad says, fine. He gives his son the share of the inheritance and the son blows it all. He disgraces himself and his father and he returns home just hoping for a job on the family farm. But what happens? The father runs to him, embraces him, restores him, loves him. The messages of these stories all tell one thing, that Jesus is looking for lost people. And the invitation for us, for the church, for people, for the followers of God is to help them find a way to discover what was lost and then throw a party 
when they're found. Because right? I don't know if you know this or not, but having church is not the point of our faith. Making disciples is. Which means it's not our job as a church. It's not just simply to have church. It's not to reopen these doors as soon as we possibly can. It's not to have good music or a good sermon or a cool name or a handsome, young, intelligent pastor, right? It's our job to equip you, the church, to make disciples. Everything, literally everything, everything that we do is designed to help you, to help individuals make disciples, whether that's by strengthening your walk or by creating an environment where you can invite someone to participate in church that they'll feel comfortable exploring the next steps. It's why we do, or at least did in 2019, all of the things that we did. This is why we do family fun nights. It's a place to invite people to. This is why we have chili cook-offs. It's why we do movie nights and dollar car washes. These aren't just fun things to do. They're places and environments to help make disciples. Specifically, not to help us make disciples, but to help you make disciples. Block maps, making disciples. Life groups, making disciples. Christmas programs, making disciples. Easter egg hunts, discipleship. CCLC, discipleship. The worship music we play is to enable you to worship, yes, but it's also hopefully good enough and musically sound that someone can enjoy it even before they know Christ. And listen, it's not my job to feed you. It's your job. If you're a Christ follower, my job is to coach you into making disciples because that's also how I make disciples, by teaching us together to grow and obey the things that the Lord has taught us. So our leadership team has been working on some language and we're going to begin using it together. So this is meant to encourage and inspire and challenge all of us together every time we hear it. So in the story of the lost sheep, remember Jesus tells us to leave the 99 in search of the one. And so the question for us all today is, who is your one? Who is your one? Who is the one person that you are attempting to invite into the way of following Jesus? Again, this is the whole point of our faith and it's not optional in our own discipleship growth. Who is your one? Let me give you some parameters for identifying, defining, and hopefully taking some next steps in seeking the one that God has placed in your life. First off, your one is a person who is not currently believing in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Right? Maybe they used to, maybe they grew up in church, maybe they've never been, but they're curious or they're just completely far from God. But in order to be your one that you're called to seek, they have to not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior yet. Number two, they have to be local right? Close by. This isn't your sister in California or your college friend that moved to Florida or somebody in New York. Your one is somebody who is local, who is close, who is proximate. Because in order to disciple someone, you have to live and be in proximity to them. Discipleship is life on life. It cannot be done remotely. Lastly, and this is by far the most difficult, for you to identify someone as your one, it has to be somebody that you intentionally rearrange your schedule for. 
Just like the story, the shepherd leaves the 99, in order for someone to be our one, we have to leave our life as we know it and enter into the places where they are, not necessarily where we are. So your one is somebody that you intentionally rearrange your schedule for. You move things around to make time for them. You make time to hang out, to invite them out for a drink or over to your house for dinner. You go to their kids' sports games or you hang out afterwards, right? You find time to do what they love to do, changing your schedule to accommodate them. Why? Because one is more important than 99. And because our call is to make disciples, and that's a personal decision that you make when you decide to follow Jesus. It isn't something that your church does for you. It's something that you do with your church, and we are here to be your encourager, your cheerleader, and to create environments for you to take steps forward in discipleship. Because we want you to succeed at this. We want what we do to enhance what you do. Everything that we're designed to be about as a local church is designed to go after the ones that already exist in your life. So we have to redefine what authentically living and sharing our faith looks like in our lives and in our homes and in our places of work and yes, even in our neighborhoods. Making disciples is the only thing that matters in our pursuit of Jesus. But what about discipleship and Bible studies and what about my growth? And here's what I have to say about that. You'll grow when you go. We have far too many people with way too much head knowledge about the kingdom of God, but not enough work experience, right? If you've been to church and Bible studies over the course of your life, I'm here to tell you, you have a master's degree in church and scripture and God. The problem is that I think we have zero work experience because we haven't made a single disciple. So what good is all that knowledge? What good is the master's degree if we can't turn it into getting the job done? Yes, there is discipleship and growth, and those are mile markers on the way towards the destination of Christ followers making disciples, teaching someone to follow Jesus, baptizing them. Listen, I guarantee that the largest thing that you'll ever do to grow your faith is getting to know someone who is far away from Christ and walking with them through the point of getting to know and understand Jesus as Savior and then standing next to them on the day when they get baptized. This is the largest growth that could ever happen for you spiritually. You don't need more Bible knowledge. We need more hands-on experience. So who is your one? That person in your life that you're moving things around for, that you're intentionally and prayerfully wanting them to be in a relationship with Jesus. And how can we as your church help you disciple them by creating environments for them to experience the reality of Jesus' love? Maybe you already have a one. Maybe this is easy for you. Maybe you already have multiple that you're pursuing. I'd encourage you to focus on just one until you cross that finish line together. Now, maybe if you're honest, you don't have anyone in that category, and you need some time for some personal reflection to see if your life matches up with this teaching of Jesus. Or maybe they're just next door, and you just haven't met them yet. Right? The reality is this series is non-optional. 
These are the commands of Jesus and not even the small ones. These are the big ones. To love God, to love our neighbors, and to seek out lost people and turn them into followers of Jesus Christ by teaching them to obey and baptizing. And as we do more of this in the upcoming days, my hope is that it changes your view on what church is. That it reignites your vision of your role in the kingdom of God. I hope that it challenges you to become more, not less, authentic in your relationships and conversations, right? No more Ned Flanders, right? Just a clearer understanding of what your faith looks like in every sphere of your life and, yes, in your neighborhood. So, your homework this week. In addition to prayerfully reviewing the conversations from the past about time and about effort and about block maps, but your challenge this week is to identify by name who your number one is. And then if you want bonus points, tell someone. Ask them to ask you about your one. And then say that you'll do the same. And together, through these intentional conversations and encouraging each other, we'll find ourselves on the path towards making disciples here in our little section of the kingdom of God. Now, before I let you go today, I have a little bit of a personal announcement. COVID has affected all of us and all at varying levels. Now, beginning in June, I started a conversation with our leadership team about taking an extended time off. They have generously and graciously made that possible. So I'll be out of the pulpit and the office for the next four weeks. And I simply don't want that to be a surprise to you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just taking some time to rest, to refresh and rejuvenate my soul, recuperate some lost energy that has been drained over the last season. My hope and prayer, and I will ask for your prayers for me as well, is that I come back even more ready to tackle all that God has for us here together at the porch. Now, since you'll be praying, can I ask you one more thing? Over the next month, as we seek to resume live services on November 1st, could I challenge you to step in, not to step out, not to step back, Right? The natural response might be not to tune in or not to show up for the next couple of weeks because I won't be here. Right? I know that my voice is, some, is the only way that some of you can get your newborn infants to fall asleep. And I'm sensitive to that. There's old videos on YouTube for late at night. Right? But in addition to having some great guest speakers lined up, there's also an opportunity to resume and carve out our community here. And I'm sensitive to this, right? I get that the world is not completely safe yet. There's no vaccine. People are still getting sick. We don't even know what normal looks like. And I don't know that either, but here's what I do know. Life has always been tough. Sickness has always been around and will continue to be around. And COVID will always be here from now on out. And right now, we have a better chance than ever to handle this pandemic than at any point that we've ever had before. And if scientists and officials are telling us that it's okay to resume worship services, then I'm with them. Or if it's safe to eat out, to go shopping, if it's safe for you to go to work, and it's safe for our kids to go to school, then I assure you, you'll be safe here for one hour on Sunday. 
We still have hand sanitizers and masks. We're taking temperatures. We're ensuring our safety over and above even what's required of us. And I get it. It's more complicated than that. But it's also as simple as this. My faith has never been in a vaccine or in a government or in anybody telling me when life is safe. Nor is my hope in self-isolation. I live my life knowing that at any time, at any moment, if God wants me, he can have me. From a car crash to COVID. And I know, I no way want to tell you how to live your life. That's not what I'm trying to do. I know that there's science on both sides. I understand that you have unique health challenges, and so we are absolutely going to continue being for you here online in every capacity as we move forward. But I can also tell you this. The church is a body. It's a people, it's a group, and depression and anxiety and loneliness and isolation are even more on the rise than they were before the pandemic. And while we may not have the answer to COVID, an answer medically, scientifically, and spiritually to the problems that we are facing is community, is this opportunity right here. And I know it's not the same on your couch, and I'm not saying that faith is the cure, and that if you trust Jesus, you'll never catch a cold. I'm not even saying that you'll be protected from COVID because you're a Christian. I'm simply saying that for me, I would rather die in community than live my life alone. So I'm inviting you to come home, to come back to church, not because you have to, not because it's safe, but simply because we want to, because it's important and community is a necessary part of life. And we have an opportunity to come together to be encouraged by the word and to encourage each other, which I don't know about you, but I've needed more in my soul in these last months than in previous seasons of my life. And for us to be the church, the people of God, the gathered togetherness is an essential act of worship. So please don't step back. Please don't wait until November 1st or wait till you see my face on the screen again. Please step in. There's a place for you and you belong here. We miss you and I'll miss you over the next few weeks, but I look forward for the opportunity to see you face to face when I get back. Before we transition into worship, would you bow your heads wherever you are and just pray with me? Heavenly Father, we get that this is a lot. It's a lot for any time, but it's a lot during COVID as well to figure out how to make disciples and care for people, God, how even to care for our own souls in a community and in a society right now that's fragmented by politics and by science and by all of these relational things that are just deteriorating under us. Heavenly Father, as we seek to serve and glorify you, would you first and foremost remind us that we are your people, that we are your children, and that nothing that we could ever do could change that. But God, would you also speak to us, inspire us, challenge us about the ways that we can be your gathered together body here and now that we would seek to reach out and love our neighbors, that we would transcend just superficial conversations to talking about the deepest parts of ourselves and that in so doing, we would be reunited and regathered together as a community. 
Not because COVID isn't real and not because we don't have fears and anxieties associated with it, but perhaps because we know that one of the solutions, one of the human elements to this is community, is being together, is this shared experience. God, our trust is in you. It isn't in in the things on the outside. It's not in science or a vaccine or government officials. God, you're all we have and you're all we need. And so in our individual situations, would you give us the information and the faith to trust you to make the wisest decisions for our family and for our following of you. Lord, we trust you in this and we'll continue following and trusting you until the very end of our days. All God's kids said, Amen.